Hi, everyone. You're listening to Who I Met Today, and I'm your host, Pam Lamp. I'm all about doing one tiny new thing every single day. And on this podcast, I invite you to come along with me and discover something new through conversations with people from all walks of life. I hope you enjoy listening to these interviews and exploring new territory with me. For more people stories and episodes, please visit my website, whoimettoday.com. My guest today is Ellen Joven. A lover of language, author of several books, and teacher of business writing, Ellen is a grammar expert. A few years ago, Ellen dragged a sign, a portable table, and a folding chair from her Manhattan apartment to a bustling subway station. People flocked to her pop-up grammar advice stand, the grammar table. I first learned about Ellen's adventures when I read an article in the New York Times, and I can't wait to talk with her today. Hi, Ellen. How are you today? Hi, Pam. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm so excited to get to talk to you. I remember when my sons were in middle school, they'd often ask me to help them with their English homework. And we'd struggle through sentence diagramming and where to use commas and how to use apostrophes. I tried to give them tricks and tips for remembering all the punctuation rules. So like you, I'm a bit of a grammar nerd. And before we dive into you manning a grammar table in Manhattan, can you give listeners a cocktail version of your background? Sure. I've spent my entire professional life either writing professionally or teaching writing, grammar, and related language-y kinds of things. I moved to New York 33 years ago now because I wanted to be a writer. And initially, I taught writing in various colleges as an adjunct. And I then spent a number of years as a freelance writer, both as a reporter and a freelance corporate writer. And then since 1999, my husband and I have had a communication skills training firm called Syntaxis. And I go into companies now, or I have for a long time. I teach writing, grammar, email etiquette, editing, anything related to the written word at work. So how to be more effective in very practical settings. One last thing that I should mention is that I study languages for fun. So I'm talking to you from in front of a bookshelf filled with grammar books from Albanian to Zulu, neither of which I've studied, but I have, I do collect languages and I just love studying language and thinking about grammar and how it's used in different ways around the world. Well, I read that somewhere. I read that you know 25 languages. Well, I don't know them. I've studied them, which is a very big difference. And it's important to me to make that distinction because, uh, let's see, I've got, I've become fluent in five total besides English. My skills wax and wane depending on how much I'm using the languages. But I have sat down and studied something more than 25 in some kind of a systematic way for a period of time. And I'm very earnest about this. I look at the vocabulary, the writing system, the oral skills, but some of them, as you might imagine, just disappear completely because I don't use them. Well, two questions. First, what are the languages that you're proficient in? And second, how do you study them? From a textbook or do you use an app where you repeat the language back to the, the recorder? The languages that I have acquired the most skills in over the years probably wouldn't surprise too many people because they're typical of English speakers, German, French, Spanish, Italian, and then to a slightly less, not quite to the same level of skill, Portuguese. Did I get to five? I think that's five. I use audio lessons from a company called Pimsleur, and I'm, I'm not on commission from them, by the way. I just happen to love them. 
in case your listeners are interested, P-I-M-S-L-E-U-R. And that is a series of interactive audio lessons. So actually, I walk around Central Park and listen to them, and then they prompt you to say things, and you say them back. So I've used those for all the languages I've studied that they offer those lessons for. And then I have two or three other main prongs. I study vocabulary intensively using various products. I do grammar, so I buy grammar books, and I also work on the writing system. So in languages where I don't know the writing system, where it's totally unfamiliar, I can get bogged down on that the entire time and not really learn much speaking. But I do try. I make a very sincere effort. That's very impressive. So let's get on to the grammar table. In 2018, you decide to pack up a table, walk out of your Manhattan apartment, and set up near the subway station. Yes. How in the world did you come up with this idea, Ellen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like talking to strangers. So I was getting a little sick of being online, and I loved discovering through social media and just the internet generally, all these language learning groups and resources that did not exist when I was growing up. If you wanted to study Ukrainian when I was a kid, you couldn't just pop on a computer and figure out how to do that. I mean, I had a, we had a typewriter sitting in the dining room, so there wasn't this ready availability of resources. But anyway, over a period of years, I got very involved in various language groups while I was studying languages and blogging about my language experiences. And I was on the computer so much and not talking to people that it really started to feel like it wasn't great for me. I really believe in being out in the light and the air. And I think socializing is important, even for people who dislike it. It's good. So I, I thought, okay, I'll just move this show to the road and bought the table and made a sign and went out there. Now, can you just do that in New York or do you have to have a permit? Well, that was the one thing that held me up a little bit. I might have done it earlier (laughs) if I had been sure about that, but I investigated the laws, or at least I tried to interpret what I saw online, which was very difficult. I I got in touch with my local community board. And what I determined is, since I'm not selling the grammar, I'm allowed to do it. If I were trying to proselytize it somehow, I guess it would be different or, you know, make money off of it. But I'm just sitting there answering a question. So as long as I don't block traffic, which I'm very careful not to do, although I was moved in Times Square once by the grammar police to a different location, (laughs) because apparently they considered me to be in the way of the shuttle to Times Square traffic. But anyway, yeah, I'm allowed to do it. So what kind of people came up to the table? Did you have customers right away? Yes, it took a matter of seconds, not minutes. So I propped the sign up. It was a little uncomfortable because I'm on the street. People are looking at me. What kind of a weirdo is this person? (laughs) And I propped up my sign on top of the table because I didn't yet have a fastener to stick it in front like I have it now. And I just sort of propped it up there and someone came over right away and started talking to me. And as far as what types of people, all types, kids, grownups, every, you know, people representing every decade of birth (laughs) that you could find roaming around Manhattan, all kinds of professions, from writers to people who work for the Metropolitan, now I always forget what this stands for, Transportation Authority, I think it is. But anyway, for, you know, to subway workers, I got everyone. And did your sign say, grammar questions answered, grammar expert here? What did you have on your sign? So the sign says, 
offers very what I consider to be various helpful ideas for <laughs> discussion in case people didn't instantly have a topic when they saw me. Although I have to say, plenty of them do. So I have things like capitalization complaints, apostrophes, grammar myths, spaces after periods, comma crisis. I have a little helpful note at the bottom for people who are feeling frustrated that they, it says vent. So some people have taken advantage of that and I offer them grammar therapy. <laughs> so how long would you sit outside at any given time? Usually I sit out for about two hours, but it's varied from an hour to five hours. It really depends. At a certain point, there are physical requirements like bathrooms. <laughs> so I have to True. think. <laughs> I've found that two hours works well. <laughs> so you had enough grammar traffic and questions that you decided to take this show on the road. Is that correct? I did. So before I just started roaming around the country freely, I did have to be a little bit practical about this because I have to make a living. So my husband and I do this teaching in, mostly in Manhattan. And so I actually wrote up a book proposal. And in the proposal, I said, hey, I want to go all over the country with this and then write about my grammar adventures around the country. So I didn't decide that I would, I would grammar gallivant so <laughs> thoroughly until I had the book proposal accepted. But by the spring, I think by the end of March, I had a publisher accept the idea. And so at that point, I knew that it was on. And we started, when I say we, so Brant, my husband, went with me and he filmed everything. So we did various loops throughout 2019 after the book was accepted. We would do a loop and then we'd come back and do some teaching and then we'd do another loop. And that way, during the year, we gradually hit all the states except for three. In January of 2020, we had been to 47 of the states and as you know, then we had COVID. So that delayed the final three for a while. But you have been to all 50 states now. I have. So the book came out in July of 2022. And soon after that, things were more open. So we went to the remaining three, which were Connecticut, <laughs> Hawaii, and Alaska. I guess Connecticut was so close that you put off going to that one. That's right. It seemed too easy. And I didn't know, I didn't know things were going to get so complicated. Because we were there. We were ready to go. And I just said, okay, we'll come back another day. And then we couldn't. Where did you go in Tennessee? Do you remember? I live in Nashville. That's why I'm asking. In Tennessee, we went, we went to Memphis. So you're traveling all over the United States and people are coming up to you at the grammar table. Do you have a funny or memorable story or a couple of them? I'm very fond of the two guys we hung out with for quite a while in Decatur, Alabama, just because... They really defied the stereotype of the person you would expect to show up at the grammar table. One of them in particular, so they were playing hooky from their construction job. They were supposed to be at work, but instead they were at the grammar table, which already <laughs> is kind of funny because, you know, people try to play hooky from school, but he was kind of at school. <laughs> they were kind of at school instead of trying to get away from it. And one of them was really quite adamant about placement of apostrophes and writing words out correctly. He was in his early 20s. You know, this kind of like he's wearing jeans, leather jacket. It really bothered him when people wrote to him with abbreviations, including his own father. So he was really defying the stereotype of the grammar lover. And I'm, I mean, I really believe he meant it deep inside that he loved grammar. 
In Richmond, Virginia, there was this cute family who came up, two little sons. They were quite little, a husband and a wife. The husband and wife had apparently been having a debate about whether to put the comma inside or outside the quotation marks. Ah. So the wife was pro-inside, and the husband, I guess, either was putting them outside or said that it depends on the situation, which is what a lot of people believe, and that makes sense. But in American English, the convention is virtually always put the comma inside the quotation marks. And so I believe that I handed the wife, I asked her if she wanted the sentence that I'd written down as an example. And I think she said that she was going to go frame it. So September of 18, you started the grammar table in New York. And by March of 2019, had a book deal, which is pretty impressive that it happened that quickly. Your book came out in summer of 2022, and I love the name of it, Rebel with a Clause. For a grammar freak like me, it was just a delight to read. Story of experiences and issues and questions as you traveled across the United States. And I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with many of the terms that the chapters represented. The M-dash, restrictive appositives, content to the left and right of a colon needs to be equal. And two things that especially piqued my interest, the first one was the Oxford comma. I've been hearing a lot about the Oxford comma lately, and I have to admit, I did not know what that meant until I read your book. But I have discovered that I am an Oxford comma user. So can you tell listeners what an Oxford comma is? Sure. It's the comma before the and, right before the last element in a list of things. So for example, I ordered a cheeseburger, comma, pizza, comma, and three hot dogs. It's the comma before the and, which is optional. You can put it in or not put it in, but generally... There are a lot of people who get very attached to their particular preference. And then in news writing, you typically don't see it, but you often do see it in books and people get very confused about why they're seeing variety. There just is variety out there. The people who use it are especially attached to it. The people who don't use it don't really care as much typically. They're more, I'm going to start a fight here by saying they're a little bit more flexible than the (laughs) Oxford comma users. (laughs) Well, that might be accurate. I guess it doesn't matter which way you go as long as you're consistent in your written product, correct? Yes, mostly I'd say that's true. Although I think that the key really is focusing on clarity so that people who don't use Oxford commas should consider that there might be places where they want them. For example, if I said I ordered pizza, comma, spaghetti and meatballs and three hot dogs, you should really put the comma after that meatballs word because otherwise you're going to have two ands there, no comma to help sort of shuttle things into place for the reader. So that is generally the principle that a lot of newspapers are supposed to be following and they don't always remember the little exception thing. If you have an element with an and in it or if the boundaries of the elements are unclear, go heavy, put in the Oxford comma, be an Oxford comma user for a moment and then you can go back to your Oxford comma disliking self. Ellen, I have to tell you that you are a whole lot more fun than a lot of the grammar teachers I had when I was growing up. I'm sorry to say that, (laughs) but you are. You make the learning fun. The other thing that I noticed in the book is that 
the number of spaces after a period at the end of a sentence have changed. And I have changed with the times. I now only put one space in between sentences when I write something. A lot of people still use two. Why did when this did even, you change? A few years ago, I realized I okay. was doing it wrong. And because I learned two spaces after a sentence. Yeah, I did too. Why did that even change? The general explanation is that in typewriter days, you had monospace typing where every letter, no matter how fat or thin it was, took up the same amount of space. So, you know, an M would have the same amount of horizontal space allocated to it as an L, which is very skinny. And I always had, I had it explained to me roughly that because the spacing is kind of erratic on typewriters, just for visual clarity, you would add the extra space after the period just to make it extra clear that you had really reached the end of a sentence. I've read some subtler explanations since, and they go really beyond. <laughs> they go beyond my typographical expertise. I think the most important principle to take away from this is that conventions do change. But if you look at printed books, you know, dating back decades, I think the 1950s is when the publishing industry largely abandoned the two-space thing. And I don't even know if it was universal before then. But we've been looking at one space after periods in print, you know, for those of us who are actually alive now to listen to this, most of us have been seeing it our entire lives. And it's very familiar to us from books and magazines where everything is nicely spaced and each letter gets an appropriate amount of horizontal space to match the letter. So anyway, I think we're more used to it than we think we are. Are kids still diagramming sentences in school, by the way? It is so funny that you asked me that today because actually... Tomorrow is the first time since I started the grammar table that I'm going to a high school to go to a grammar class and they diagram in that class. I don't hear about diagramming very often, although as you can imagine, having a grammar table, I probably hear more about the diagrammers than the average person would, especially since I have a couple of diagramming videos up online on my grammar table YouTube channel. But I'm going to go talk about diagramming and grammar things with children tomorrow. So someone still does, just not that many. I have another question. I had a teacher, Mr. Schwartz. I was probably in sixth or seventh grade or seventh or eighth, maybe. And he said, it was a writing class, that if you ever turned in a paper, and we turned in a paper every week, and you started a sentence with there, T-H-E-R-E, Anywhere in the paper, it was an automatic F, automatic zero. And I never got a zero, but that taught me that I never start a sentence with there. What do you think about that? Haven't you ever wanted to? Oh, I've wanted to a lot, but I just keep going back to my English grammar and Mr. Shorts, and I just can't do it. I was probably told something similar to that, and I do sometimes, well, I do pretty regularly restructure sentences that begin that way, because I, I think it can often be made more dynamic. But like a lot of rules, I'm going to put rules in air quotes that you can't see right now. Rules that we were taught when we were kids are often over applied. I mean, there can be guidance and there could be general advice that may be good in most cases, but not in others. And I just actually used, I answered a question about this in a presentation, literally a few days ago, and I used the example of Milton Friedman's book, The Economist Milton Friedman's book, There's No Such Thing as a Free Lunch. That's the actual oh, book title. And yeah. I kind of joked around that if I rewrote it, <laughs> 
Well, I rewrote, I actually rewrote it and photoshopped a new title onto it. And the new title is Free Lunches Do Not Exist. So anyway, my point is that his original title was better. And if you think about some of the sayings that we have, there are two sides to every question. There's no place like home. There's no time like the present. There's definitely a place. See, I just began with there again. There's definitely a place for there is or there are at the beginning of sentences. And I don't think it deserves the chronic vilification. I like that. Can you read a book or an article or listen to a conversation without, in the back of your mind, critiquing the grammar? Yes, I think I do that quite a lot. And you do what? You you critique the grammar? No, that I I can do it without critiquing it. And I feel that when I say things like that, people think I'm pulling their legs sometimes. But actually, there's so many things that I value about human communication. And in addition, there's so many dialects and dialect varieties where things that One dialect speaker might view as ungrammatical, another just has as part of their daily way of speaking. And I'm more aware of those variations now than I was when I was younger because I've been around more. And I also specifically seek them out. I listen to programs with different dialects and try to get a better sense of the range of Englishes you find across the country and also across the world since English is a global language. And I really think that that variety is often mischaracterized as errors. We get to the way we speak mostly based on how we grew up and how the people around us speak. And I think that it is way too narrow-minded to judge people for, I don't know, like the often thing. If people say often or often, there's so much judgment in either direction about what that means. And what it really means is that the often people heard often growing up and the often people heard often growing up. And I don't know, I don't want to waste judgment on that. Well, and if you did it during conversations, I'm not sure you'd have very many friends. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, grammar etiquette is such an important part of this. Seriously. So many of the people who write to me complaining about grammar make what are clear grammatical mistakes. If you're going to be, if they're going to be fussy about it, they're making mistakes as they're writing to me, complaining about the grammar of someone else. And often the thing they're complaining about isn't actually an error. It's just an opinion. I also get a lot of those. I get a lot of grammar emails about what people don't like about what other people do. Well, a person once wrote to me and said, your blog and podcast, which as you know, is called Who I Met Today, should actually be called Whom I Met Today. Your grammar isn't proper if you only say who. And I wrote back and thanked her and I said, I realized it was improper, but whom I met today doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. (laughs) Well, Twitter made the same decision you did because I think they're, I forget the exact wording, but when they make recommendations about people you should follow, it's not whom to follow, it's who. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's, I think it is who to follow or it's a phrasing very close to that but they too ignored that. And I absolutely don't judge that because I think whom is a way to get invited to fewer parties. (laughs) I I would have to agree with that. Ellen, what do you like to do in New York when you aren't manning a grammar table or teaching? I do a huge amount of walking. Huge. I walk everywhere. In fact, COVID made me do that even more because I I didn't go on subways for a while. And then I realized it's almost as fast to walk most places that I go anyway. So I almost look forward to appointments on the other side of town so that I have an excuse to organize a walk back and forth for it. 
I love Central Park and I love Highline Park. Mm. Yesterday, I just added to my park collection by going to Little Island, which is a new park. So Where is I, that? Little Island is down around 14th on the Hudson. And it's a new park. It's new as of, I think, 2021. And I haven't been to New York since then. So I'll have to put that on oh, my list and look it up. It was jammed with tourists. So it's very popular. Well, I always like to ask my guests what new thing they've done or discovered lately, big or small. And I can't wait to hear what you're going to share with us all. This is a lot of pressure. (laughs) Okay, so I am going to cheat a tiny bit with that question, but only a tiny bit. And I hope you will forgive me for this. Forgive me. (laughs) I love birds. I really love birds. I started paying attention to them about 15 years ago, but I'm a very, very slow learning birder. So I'm not that expert yet. But what I've discovered recently is that I can merge two kind of nerdy interests, birds and grammar, in one outing. So now when I go out with the grammar table, I often take it to Central Park. And in the cart where I take all the grammar books, I have binoculars so that if there's any, I can handle grammar emergencies on the one hand, but if there's any bird emergency, I'm ready with my binoculars. And I've sort of, with that, I've maxed out the amount of nerdiness that anyone is allowed (laughs) to have in one afternoon. (laughs) What kinds of birds do you see in Central Park? Well, I mean, there are all kinds. We have owls, we have different kinds of hawks. We have tons of warblers that pass through in spring and fall. And so we're about, I don't think we've begun since I was just out there, I didn't see any or I forget when the warbler migration starts, but it's beautiful. We get so many varieties. People think of New York as just city, city, city. But I mean, Central Park is a major bird destination and it is full of birders. Ellen, it was so nice to talk with you. Thank you very much for coming on Who I Met today. Thank you, Pam. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today's show. A huge thank you to Ellen for joining me. If you're in New York and are lucky enough to spot Ellen and the Grammar Table, please send me a photo of the two of you. I'd love to see it. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, I hope you'll listen to other episodes and spread the word about this new show. A huge thank you to Brian at Top Tier Audio for his advice and guidance. And thanks to you for tuning in. And remember, I'd love to hear from you if you discover a fun new thing. My email is pam at whoimettoday.com.